Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Criminal Discourse. I'm Maddie. And I'm Trish. And today we're going to move a little bit off of what we've been doing so far. So we have put quite a few episodes out there, and I want to thank everybody that's given us feedback and sort of directions, things they want to see. It's been very helpful for us as we continue through this podcast journey. And I just want to encourage anyone out there that's listening, enjoying what you're listening to, please just hit subscribe or just send us a message. Let us know we're on Facebook and on our Twitter, just so that we can kind of hear what you guys are thinking and if there's things that you'd like to continue to see from us. So again, today we're going to move a little bit away from the murder type crimes that we've been focused on the last few weeks. And today I'm going to tell you all about Victor Lustig. Have you heard about this guy before, Trish? I have not. I got your notes and I'm like, how have I never heard about this guy? But he's like the granddaddy of con artists. Yes, indeed. It's almost like Oceans, which I love the Oceans movies, but in real life and in the 20s. Getting right in here, and and a lot of this, this person was obviously a con man, like we said. And so a lot of it is things that he's may have said in interviews or kind of getting his life story from him. So not all of it we've been able to confirm is true, but this is his story, basically. Because like any good con artist, is he really going to be honest? <laughs> that, that was not his forte, as we'll no. see through this story. So Victor Lustig was born in Hostini, which then it was Austria-Hungary, now the Czech Republic, in 1890. His parents were peasants, and he says that he began stealing just to survive. So whether it be food, money, whatever he had to do to survive and for his family to survive, and he made it seem almost like it was a Robin Hood style where he would only steal from the greedy and dishonest, as he called them. As a teen, he went from panhandler to pickpocket to burglar to a hustler. Through all of this, his teen years, he was shown to be extremely intelligent, and he went on to actually study at the University of Paris, and he learned several languages. He spoke Czech, English, German, Italian, and French, and was fluent in all of them. Did he study languages in like was that his major or did he have like another major? I didn't see what his actual major was, but I don't think that it was languages. I think it was more on the business side. From what I can tell, he just happened to be so extremely intelligent that he could pick up languages easily. And I would assume that even at that time in the Czech Republic, if you were traveling around, you would have to know other languages. Even now in Europe, it's a lot more likely for people to speak other languages than in the US, for example. If you go to Germany, there's a lot more people that'll speak English than people here that would speak German, if you know what I mean. Right. Well, they're closer together and there's a lot more inner travel. I mean, we have Canada. Which, which is kind of its own language. English. Well, French Canadian, French Canadian. But yeah, it's not common where it would be more so in Europe. I get that. Yeah. And I wanted to say too, so I got a lot of this information. The Smithsonian actually did two really good articles on this guy. And I don't even understand really why they did two different articles because they were semi-identical, but there's two of them and there's a lot of good information out there. So like I said, as a teen, he was very intelligent, studied at the University of Paris, and then decided to start to make voyages towards the U.S. As a young man, he traveled to the U.S. and his first victims almost of his true con man hustling stick were the people on these transatlantic voyages. And in the U.S. at that time, so it was right after World War one and it was what we would know as the roaring 20s so if you think the great gatsby style where money is just flowing everywhere and people are spending and they just made for very easy targets so he started out with sort of these fake investment schemes so for example you would have all these people coming 
on a boat crossing the Atlantic to get to New York. And he would say that he was a Broadway producer and that he was putting up this new Broadway show and how they should invest in it. And then they would give him money and they get there and there'd be no Broadway show. It was just him scamming them out of their own money. Not very nice. No, it was not very nice. <laughs> Shortly after his arrival in the U.S., he was on the radar of detectives in 40 cities, and he became known as the Scarred because of a scar he had on his left cheekbone, which apparently was from a love rival in Paris. So I don't know if they got into some sort of sword fighting duel or if somebody just attacked him with a knife. But it's so, when I say romantic, I don't mean romantic in the sense that dueling is romantic, but in the style of like romantic literature. It's a very romanticized story. You have this guy that was living in Paris. He has a scar on his face from a rival lover and then travels to the U.S. to scam all of these people out of their money. It's just very film worthy, I would say. I'm surprised there hasn't been a film made of his life. I am too. I was looking for one. I didn't find one. Maybe there is. If anybody knows about a film about this guy, please let me know because I'd really enjoy watching it. So in 1919, he married Roberta Noré, and they had at least one daughter. I couldn't get a whole lot of information on how many children they had, but the daughter later claimed that he also had a secret family that he was spending money on. And then on top of his secret family, he also had a lover, Billy Mae Schiebel, who had a million-dollar prostitution racket. And this is a million dollars in 1920. Yeah. When I read that, that's what I thought. I'm like, wow, that's a lot of money. I mean, it's a lot of money now. million dollars isn't something to shake at. But back in the 1920s? Yeah. That's, yeah, from prostitution. Like, did she have one brothel or was she kind of a madam that sent the girls out? So I believe she had multiple brothels from what I could see. And I actually found a few articles on her from newspapers from the Times because she had a lot of charges brought against her for moving girls back and forth to different cities and things like that. So she was a human trafficker. A little bit. That when they say prostitution yeah. racket, as not nice as prostitution racket sounds, I think it was a little bit worse than that. And one thing she used to do is she used to get her customers, so once they were nice and drunk, get them to sign blank checks so that then when the, she went to fill out the check, she would put just exorbitant amounts of money, but they wouldn't go to the police because they were spending money in a brothel. So it was- Wait, isn't that the, isn't that like the plot line of J-Lo's new movie, Hustler? Exactly. It is exactly wow. that problem. Okay. <laughs> Except for instead okay. of just strippers doing it, it's- the madam of the prostitution racket. So yes, okay. so that was her move back in the 1920s. So JLo's a little late to the game. So in talking a little bit about the scams that he would run during this period, one of them was the Romanian money box. So he had this small wooden box and he would claim that it could print $100 bills using radium. He would sell these boxes for $20,000 or more. I saw one where he sold it for $74,000 and again, 1920. And he would put a few like counterfeit bills in it. And he would give it to them to show an example of how it printed to prove that it actually worked. But it would take it six hours to print out this bill. So by the time they got to the point where the fake bills that he had stuffed in weren't printing anymore, he was already long gone from the city. And people couldn't go to the police again, because they were printing counterfeit money. Well, and that kind of goes back to when you said he started, he started as this, whether it was true or not, you know, taking from the dishonest for, you know, to That's help true. him survive. So he's still kind of picking marks that are little shady, little dishonest, because he knows maybe that they're not likely to turn to the police because what they're doing is dishonest yeah, and, it keeps and illegal. Him safe because again, 
people aren't going to the police. So I think the detectives that had picked him out was more for the fake investments and things like that, where truly it was people honestly putting money into something and then him kind of running off with it. But apart from that, Mm -hmm. most of this was illegal for people that were already doing illegal things. So again, he had a lot of investment schemes. So fake real estate investments, fake Broadway show investments, all of that. And one that I wanted to mention too, was a scam that he pulled on Al Capone, which everybody should know who Al Capone is, which if you go to Philly, I was just thinking about this. Have you ever been to the penitentiary in Philly? Yeah, they have his cell. Yeah, it's so cool. They do. I think in Halloween, they do nighttime visits too. They do, but mm -mm. it's creepy. I scared myself in broad daylight on a sunny day. Uh -uh. (laughs) Uh-oh. He actually convinced Al Capone to give him $50,000 for an investment and saying that he would be able to double his money. Instead of actually using the money for an investment, he put the money in a safe for about two months and then returned it to Al Capone saying that the investment had went horribly wrong, but he wanted him to have his money back. So he was purely just scamming Al Capone, not even for that money, but just to get him to trust him. On top of now trusting him because he got all of his money back after a bad investment, Capone was so impressed that he gave him $5,000 just as a, hey, good job for giving me my money back and not throwing me under the bus for $50,000. Isn't that crazy? It is crazy. And it almost makes me think like, is he someone for the thrill of it? Like a thrill seeker? Like this was Al Capone. And even though now we know back in history, he wasn't a very nice man and a gangster and a murderer. We knew back then the same things. And the fact that he went to him charmed him, scammed him of the 50000 And it was never about that $50,000. It was about, I don't know, like, w- what was the thrill there to see if he could do it to see if he well, could I manipulate mean, yeah. him? If you're putting yourself in his place too, you have people that are easy targets. And then you would have people that are more difficult. And the fact that you can scam Al Capone, you would think that he has a pretty good BS radar. And the fact that you're able to trick this guy into not only giving you money, but then just trusting you in general, that's pretty up in the ranks, even for a con man. Yeah, that's why I'm like, almost like that thrill seeker aspect, you know, like when you mentioned the ocean movies, like it's the next big thing. So now let's talk about how he sold the Eiffel Tower. I love this story. This is my favorite part of his story. In May of 1925, he came to Paris and he got someone to create fake stationery with the official French seal on it. So obviously that part on its own was illegal because he wasn't part of the official French government. He then checked into Hotel de Crillon, which is this super classy stone palace hotel. It's still in Paris and I've I've been in front of it. I've never been in it because I I think just walking through the door, I wouldn't have enough money to walk through. But you can stay there now. It's still existing for between $1,200 and $20,000 a night. I'm curious to see what the difference between the room at the $1,200 level is and the $20,000 a night level is. So I looked at it just for kicks. For $1,200, it's pretty much smaller than a studio apartment. It's a bed and a little mini bathroom with like a stand-up shower that you can only have one person in, like that tiny itty-bitty shower. And then for $20,000, you have this huge suite with a living room, a couple bedrooms, and you have a balcony that has a view of the Eiffel Tower. Anyway, the point is that this was a a popular meeting place. So if you were going to have an important meeting or you wanted to impress somebody, this was the place to do it, basically. Using that stationery, he wrote letters to the top people in the French scrap metal industry inviting them there to meet. When they got there, he explained that because of engineering faults, 
costly repairs and political problems, the Eiffel Tower was going to be torn down and that they were going to be selling it to the highest bidder, basically for scrap metal. And I remember I did watch a drunk history on this because they did one on him. And they said that at the time in the French newspapers, they were complaining about the Eiffel Tower because of the cost. It was never meant to be up very long. It was just built for the World's Fair and that it was, again, rusting and deteriorating in parts and and was costing the French government a lot of money to maintain the upkeep. Yeah, and even now, so if you go and if you've been to the Eiffel Tower, you'll see that it's painted. So every couple years, I forget what the interval is, but every couple years they paint it and they paint it a different color even now. And but it's my point is even now it's a lot of upkeep. And so at the time, the French economy was sort of in a downward. It was after the war and everything. So the French economy was suffering already. So, yes, Mm -hmm. you're right. It was at the time. It wasn't out of this world that the French government would tear down the Eiffel Tower. It was sort of crazy, but it wasn't impossible to believe, basically. And he played on that. Exactly. And he they thought he was a French official. He had official stationery. He's meeting in one of the biggest hotels, the most popular hotels in Paris. And he's telling you this, basically saying, I can't tell you everything, but basically we have to tear it down. And he told them that they had to keep it secret because they didn't want an outcry from the public for having torn it down. So that's how he kept everything sort of secretive. While most men kind of wised up before giving him any money, one man... Andre Poisson agreed to buy the tower, even paying Lustig extra to guarantee the contract for him. I read something that Poisson felt that he was a legit French bureaucrat because he needed to pay him a little grease money to guarantee the contract. So he felt it was legit because of that reason, because I guess at the time to get anything done, you had to grease some palms. And here he greased Lustig's palm with some extra money. In total... For the Eiffel Tower plus the bribe, he paid him $70,000. So $20,000 was, like you said, for the bribe and then $50,000 for the tower itself. And as soon as Lustig got the money, he took off to Vienna. And apparently Andre started calling the government, asking them, hey, when's the tower going to be torn down? And they just started laughing at him. And he was so embarrassed of having been conned in that way once he figured out that it was a con that he never even went to the police because he was so humiliated. Yeah, I could see that. But could you imagine I mean, what are you just, gonna like, do? being a French official and being in that office and somebody calling me like, so I'm just wondering, um, I paid $50,000. When is the tower going to be torn down? <laughs> and I'm curious, did he get a receipt? You bought it. Shouldn't there have been something official? And if you didn't get something official, wouldn't that have told you? Yeah, he gave him a fake okay. contract, basically. And I don't know. I mean, I get it, the embarrassing part, but technically he wasn't doing anything nefarious. He thought this was a legitimate government official. Granted, the bribe, not so good. But again, it was on official stationery. He passed himself off as a government official. You have to think at the time, too, he was sort of an up-and-coming businessman in Paris, which is the whole reason that he wanted to buy the tower in the first place, to give him some couth. And if you're a businessman and people think that you got conned out of that much money, I could understand, too, where you wouldn't want that to be widely known for your reputation. Yeah, I get that then. I do. Because, yeah, you know, trust me with your business. But yeah, I I fell for this con. So when Lustig was in Vienna, he was checking the papers and figuring that something would have come out about it. But when nothing did, he realized that Andre hadn't gone to the police or anybody. And he came back later that year to perform the same scheme again. But this time the police got word before the meeting. So he skipped town before they could get to him. 
Do you know how he got wind that the police were on to him? Or was it just kind of an instinct that something wasn't right? And he's I like, okay, I got to cut bait and run. How he knew that. I don't know if he kind of had his ear to the ground with them looking for him or if they started to look for him. So Lustig had at this time 47 aliases that he was using and he used to carry around disguises with him like outfits to be a bellhop or a beard to be a rabbi like all these different disguises so that he could get if somebody did come to get him he could put a disguise on and get out of the hotel or wherever he was so a bit of an escape artist yes which we will see as well This was in 1925. By 1930, he had teamed up with pharmacist William Watts and chemist Tom Shaw to counterfeit money. So they were circulating thousands of dollars each month for five years, and they were called the super notes of the error. Even bank tellers couldn't tell that it was fake money. The counterfeit money is what brought him into the light of the Secret Service, and specifically an agent named Peter Rabano, who vowed to put him behind bars. It was exactly like Catch Me If You Can. So Rabano started chasing him around and like I said he would carry passports aliases disguises and he would always be one step ahead in 1935 so this is after five years of the counterfeit money circulating Billy May who if we remember is his mistress slash madam slash prostitution racket extraordinaire found out that Lustig was stepping out on her with another woman and she decided to get revenge. So she made an anonymous tip to the federal authorities and on May 10th, when Lustig was walking down a New York City street, he felt a tug on his collar and heard hands in the air. He was surrounded by Secret Service agents. At that point, he was arrested and taken to Manhattan Federal Detention Center. And on Sunday before Labor Day, so this was in May and now we're in September, he fashioned a rope from bedsheets cut through the bars, which I have no idea how he did that, and swung from the window like Tarzan, just swung out of the detention center, which is, I believe, in New York City itself. Like, it's not in an, it's not away from town at all. It's in town. I think the one now is is almost not a complete high rise when you think of New York skyscrapers, but it's a pretty tall building in the center of Manhattan. Yeah. So when people started to look up and see that he was swinging down, he took out a rag and pretended to be cleaning the windows as if he was just a window cleaner. Like, nope, don't worry. I'm not a prison escapee. I'm just cleaning the windows. When he finally got to the ground, he landed on his feet, took a bow, literally, and then ran off. And they found a note on his pillow in his prison cell. And it was, of course, a quote from Les Mis. What else would he put there? And it said, he allowed himself to be led in a promise. Jean Valjean has his promise, even to a convict, especially to a convict. It may give the convict confidence and guide him on the right path. Law was not made by God, and man can be wrong. It's just every step of the way, it's movie-worthy. Where is this movie? Somebody needs to make a movie. On September 28th, so this has been almost a month that he's been escaped from prison, he jumped into a car that was waiting for him and agents were watching. So when they saw the car start up, they jumped into their car and a chase began. So for nine blocks, the chase went on and when the driver refused to stop, the agents crashed their car into them. And apparently, again, movie style, the agents opened up the door And according to newspapers at the time, he said, well, boys, here I am. (laughs) I like him. Besides the crime part. He has a lot of bravada, you know, like, because he knows, I think I've been able to get out of everything. So what makes me think I'm not going to get out of this? He was so charming. That's what everybody describes him as being so charming. They called him the Count. And I don't even think that that was him giving him that nickname it was just because of how elegant and charming and he could just draw you in 
after this, he's obviously arrested and he was brought before a judge and sentenced to 20 years in Alcatraz. Now, I don't understand how a judge in New York sentenced him to prison in Alcatraz. I believe it was federal at the time, but still, like, why they decided, maybe because of the escape, to send him all the way to Alcatraz. Yeah, I wondered that too, because I was like, well, wait a minute, Leavenworth was in business and that's just Kansas. Why are you carting him all the way across to San Francisco? But maybe because that was a supermax and he had a history of escaping because I don't think the one in New York, that jail was the only one he no, ever I don't escaped believe from. So. I think he had been he had had some partial We're arrests not- throughout his career, let's say. And it was like county's things or before he actually went before a judge and that he had escaped from those facilities as well. So maybe that's why. Maybe that's why they decided to go all the way to Alcatraz. When he arrived in Alcatraz, they searched him thoroughly and they hosed him with freezing seawater and then marched him naked down the main corridor of the prison. I I don't know if that was a normal thing at the time, which the freezing seawater, I feel like I've seen in an Alcatraz movie where that was a normal thing that they did with incoming prisoners. Have you heard of that? Have you seen any Alcatraz movies? I have, actually. Yes. And that I get. I didn't get the whole walking to your cell. All I know is I definitely did not want to be a prisoner in Alcatraz. So in December of 1946, 11 years later, he's been in Alcatraz all this time, and he started making constant medical requests stating that he was severely ill. And the prison thought that he was faking an illness as a part of another escape plan. Finally, they transported him to a medical facility and realized that he wasn't faking, and he actually died shortly after that from complications arising from pneumonia. I don't think that prison was really well insulated, so in the cold showers might have had something to do with it. We have to learn more about Alcatraz. Maybe we can... That'd be really cool. Can we do like a bonus? That's what we'll do. So one day, for those that are listening, we will do a bonus episode on Alcatraz itself and its most notable prisoners. Right. One day. No timeline given, but one day. One day. One day can we visit Alcatraz? All right, let's do that too. I wonder if they'd let us record at Alcatraz. Yeah, that'd be fun. We'll figure it out. I'm not doing it outside with seagulls. And seagulls. (laughs) So on his hospital death certificate, his occupation was marked as apprentice salesman. Isn't that apprentice salesman? It's just, I can't get over the fact that this would be the best movie ever. And nobody's done it. I don't it know. It would be a good movie. I'm just curious, why Apprentice Salesman? Why not Con Artist? I don't know if they can put that on a death certificate, but I mean, that's what he was. He was a good con artist. The fact that he did so much and it all whittles down to his a note on his death certificate that says Apprentice Salesman. Do we know how much money over his lifetime of conning? I know the 70000 from the Eiffel Tower. Then there was that box you mentioned, not to mention the money, the 5000 from Al Capone. And then, of course, the people he conned on the steam liners. He was a millionaire. Even in the early stages, by the time that he was married, I think like in the early 20s, he was already a millionaire just from scams. He never held a true job or had a true income besides scams. And it was in the millions. Now, did his family get any of that money? Like his real family and his secret family? Didn't, did they get any of his estate or was there just not any estate to give him? I, I have no idea. I know that his daughter has said it, like said in interviews later that he spent most of his money on his secret family. So I don't know, but I don't know. There's not really a whole lot of detail on that. I don't know how open to the public or to interviews the family was at the time. So historians have tried to track him down just to 
make sure that, well, not make sure, just to get more information about him to try to find out where he was really from, what his early life was really like. And they went to the town that he said he was from, but they found no trace of him or his true identity. So we really have no idea who he really was or if he even really was Victor Lustig or if that was just a name that he gave amongst 47 other aliases that he gave. So I wanted to end his story with a quote from a Secret Service agent that was describing him. And he said, he was elusive as a puff of cigarette smoke and as charming as a young girl's dream. That should be what's on his death certificate. As occupation. <laughs> yes. Yes. That's probably more true. Or on his, like, you know, headstone. Do we know where he's buried? Like, did they send him back to Austria? I doubt it. No, I would think that he's probably in some prison grave. His family was very secretive after his death. It wasn't even made public until two years afterwards. So we don't have, I couldn't find any information on where his final resting place is. But isn't that even sadder? Thinking about that, just not even having a true identity or not wanting to have a true identity. Well, maybe as a con artist, you don't want anything connected to you, though. All right. So that's all I have. It was a good one. Different. Nobody died. Well, he did. But uh, nobody really died. No, but it's criminal. We talked about crime. I think it's just interesting. I, I couldn't get over it hearing his story. Every step of the way, I'm like, oh, my gosh, really? Oh, my gosh, he did that? So I thought that it would be a fun, more lighthearted story to share. Do we have any criminal discourse life lessons on this? I'd say just don't believe everything you see or hear. Like double check anything. Like I think of the box that he was doing the counterfeit money on. I'd be like, can you open that up? Because I'd like to see the inside. You know, if something sounds good, too good to be true, it probably is too good to be true. Even though this is a more romanticized version of what we would think of a con artist, we still have con artists out there today. So don't just believe something that somebody tells you. And just because someone's charming doesn't mean that they're truthful or honest. So double check your information. We're in a day and age now where back then you couldn't check on investment information or check a background on somebody. And we have that availability now. So don't be afraid to use it. Yeah, absolutely. I think of the Dirty John story where he came off very charming, yeah. very charismatic, passed himself off as a doctor. And here he he was a con artist. So as you all know, we'd love for you to hit subscribe if you like what you're hearing. We'd also love some comments, any feedback that you can give us so that we know how we're doing and what we can improve on. You can hit us up on our Facebook, our Twitter, or on whatever you're using to listen to your podcast. We look at the reviews as well. So let us hear from you. Yeah. I mean, we're on iTunes, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Stitcher. So hopefully to get out on a few more platforms too in the future. But yeah, we'd love to hear from you. Subscribe. You know, we really enjoy doing this. We hope you enjoy listening. So we thank you so much, especially the new listeners that have come on. We truly, truly appreciate it. So until next time, guys. So just remember, if you see something, say something. Don't be afraid to report something. You may have that missing piece that could help solve a crime. And remember to always be safe, but also remember to be kind. Until next time, guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.